Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 370. To talk about cultish or not to talk about cultish, that is the question. My name is Caleb Hegg. I, I am trying to stay warm in, I don't know, like, I think it's two degrees out. I'm Rob Van Hoff. You know, I just realized that our uh, our intro music is not loud enough, or long enough, rather. It is not long enough, so I will have to fix that. Yeah, it's really cold here too, man. How's life? You've been shoveling a bunch of snow or what? Pretty much daily. <laughs> so funny, awesome. we have a little dog, and I've shoveled out a place for him to go out in the grass and do his number, you know. But he saw a squirrel, and he took off a squirrel, and he, he ran through the place where I'd cleared out in the grass and then jumped up into where it's snowy, and he went, <laughs> and he kind of like <laughs> realized it was, you know, almost <laughs> as deep as he is. And That's then he's hopping like a bunny to try to get out. It was really funny. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm trying to get our, our, our sound levels dialed in here. It's, uh, it's harder than people might think. It Just seems like every to. single week, every single week it, uh, it changes. Uh, Lena asks, are we in Alaska? No, we're in Washington state, two different sides of the state. Rob is in Spokane, Washington. I am in Tacoma, Washington, the liberal coast. Yeah. The left coast. Okay. Um, okay. It's 11 degrees. I just looked up that the website says it's 11 degrees out. So my friend saw the, uh, my good, my good friend, Jeff, who's probably listening right now, saw the name of the, uh, show. What's in a name? And, th- and then said, oh, you're talking about cultish. And I was like, no, I'm not talking about cult. Why would I talk about cultish? And uh, he was like, oh, the name, you know, like what's in a name? And it's like, oh yeah, it's a bunch of, uh, it's a bunch of sacred name, bad scholarship again. Um, but now I have it in my head that maybe we should mention cultish. And since beginning of wisdom, that is Andrew is in the chat room right now. I think that t- right now is the perfect time to mention cultish. Cultish is a podcast and they, it's, I, Correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew. I believe, I do believe that Cultish is actually um, produced and put on by Apologia. Now, I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that that is the case. Anyway, basically, they look at different uh, denominations, different churches, different uh, breakoff groups, whatever you want to say. And they kind of ask the question, is this a cult or not? And uh, so they've teased for about They need six- a game show. Cultish. <laughs> is this a game like a no game show cult or not and yeah, then cult like, or not. they start giving exactly. clues and then people hit the buzzer <laughs> it's a cult <laughs> yeah no doubt like the gong show yeah anyway so uh they 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 teased out the uh the the hebrew roots movement um in i don't know probably six months ago and they got a lot of as to be expected they got a lot of pushback and not and just push back on like what should we study in terms of the Hebrew roots and all of a sudden it was like people were like throwing rotten tomatoes at them. Anyway, so uh, their first show on the Hebrew roots movement came out yesterday, where they brought on our friend Andrew Schumacher. Andrew uh, is has a uh, ministry called the Beginning of Wisdom, and basically now okay. I want to be very fair to Andrew here, but I, and Andrew can correct me if I'm wrong or not. But Andrew says openly that his ministry is to address and have apologetics against the Hebrew Roots Movement. Now, I actually don't think that that's quite right. I think that uh, Andrew's ministry is actually to have apologetics against Torah observance in a very specific area. I don't think that uh, that Andrew is against Torah observance. In fact, I would say that he's for m- almost all Torah observance. He he personally would say that he, I think he would say, I don't want to speak for him, um, but he, I think that he would say he's against the ceremonial aspects of the law. And really what Andrew is uh, trying to do is actually uh, make apologetics against Sabbath festivals and kosher laws. That's about it. Now, there might be a couple other things things here, but that's about what his ministry uh, is aimed to do. Okay. So I don't actually think that his ministry is, is uh, looking at the, at the Hebrew roots movement. I think that his, um, that his ministry is actually to try to combat those aspects of Torah observance. Okay. So with that said, I had a feeling that uh, the show was not going to be about the Hebrew Roots movement per se. Now, I will say that they actually did surprise me. I would say that probably about half of the show was really aimed at 
the history of the Hebrew Roots Movement. And Andrew did a brilliant job of kind of showing where it came from and how the Hebrew Roots kind of got started. And then pointing out that there's really no, to, to be honest with you, I agreed with almost everything that he said about the Hebrew Roots Movement. In fact, I, I think that he did a, a bang up job of kind of showing the nuances of the Hebrew Roots Movement, why I think that it's wrong. And uh, I think that it's, uh, I think that he did a great job on that. Now, the reason I wasn't going to talk about this is because I do not see myself as part of the Hebrew Roots Movement. That would be, you know, and I even said to Andrew after the fact, I said that uh, he, um, you know, he wouldn't be happy if I lumped him in with the uh, Oneness Pentecostals because they deny things like the Trinity and whatnot. Well, I, I see the same in the Hebrew Roots Movement. I don't consider myself a, uh, a, a Hebrew rooter because they deny some of the fundamental aspects of theology that I strongly oppose. So. Um, with all that said, why am I talking about it then? Well, and here's the reason is because I think that what this did for me was showed me that the theology that I ascribe to, we could name it whatever you want, pro-Torah, we could name it pronomian, we could name it whatever, Seventh-day Sabbath, festivals, kosher laws, biblical kosher laws. I think that those, I think that the wider Christian community needs to kind of come to terms with the fact that this is the logical conclusion to theonomy. And that it's not just part of the Hebrew Roots Movement. It's not just part of the Messianic Movement. It's within Christianity now. It's a, it is a the, theological tab. You know, I believe in, you know, name your theologies. I believe in, you know, I think that I would say as a Christian and someone who holds to what I would say I'm a Baptist, I believe in the... 66 book canon. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in, um, you know, the ecclesia and that God will build his ecclesia. I believe in elders and deacons and all. I mean, just name your theology, right? And within that Rolodex of theology, keeping, you know, Seventh day Sabbath and, and festivals is part of it. Do you understand what I'm saying, Rob? Uh, I understand this last point pertaining to the, the podcast you're talking about. I have it's totally off my radar. I have sure. no idea like who you're talking about or what skin in the game they have. But with respect to this last point, yeah, in terms of like overall what I think is good biblical theology, I, I that's what I hear you saying. You're just saying you're pretty much right square in the middle of that and that the that it's unavoidable to affirm the covenant of Abraham right as as the framework for the law of Moses, etc prophets and understanding, you know, the Bible as a whole. Um, yeah, I think that anytime somebody tries to, to make these issues, salvation issues, you know, the, the, to me, once again, we go back to covenant. Abraham was part of the covenant because he believed. And then he circumcised himself as a, as a act of showing that he was in that covenant. And I actually had a conversation with someone recently, actually this past week, about you know he was he was worried that he, uh, you know if he if he what didn't become circumcised that he wouldn't be able to share in the millennial reign, he wouldn't be able to be like he wouldn't be a part of that, he wouldn't be around for that. I thought, wow, that, there are some real interesting theologies going around here, and ultimately, I think Andrew has done a very good job of noticing that one of the things that tends to happen within the Torah observant sphere, whatever, whatever label you want to put onto it is a want to go back to uh, a workspace salvation. I agree with him on that. I think that that is one of the big down, uh, you know, one of the big traps that people fall into when, when trying to um, say, what does God want me to do? Because anytime we say, what does God want me to do? No matter if it's Torah observance or not, if we say things like, um, you know, God wants me to be, you know, faithful to my wife and faithful to his word. And he, he doesn't want me to lie or any of these things. All of these things, um, I think that we can start to look at ourselves and say, oh, I'm doing really well. Like it's all, you know, I'm doing well. In other words, workspace salvation, I think, can seep in at any point. Um, but ultimately, I think that I think that my whole point in this is simply to say, I think people want to lump any form of Torah observance in with um, the Hebrew roots or the messianic movement. And my point is we can't do that anymore. The seventh day Sabbath and the festivals is becoming a theological viewpoint that people within the church are starting to believe. 
So it's not about Hebrew roots. It's not about Messianic. It's about Christianity at this point. It's about theology. That's my point. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, one example on that, Caleb, is just that uh, I think ETS has had an Adventist, a strong Adventist section for years. Right. And and their Seventh-day Baptists, right? I mean, the, uh, so even if they have a different way of teaching about other parts of the law, your point is you, you can't just lump it all. You can't just, you know, create a box and write Hebrew roots on it and then put the Sabbath in there. It, that's, it's not really intellectually honest with what's going on in the, in the church more largely. Right. So, okay, let's uh, let's get some things out of the way here. You should give us a call and tell us what you think about all of that. Uh, and you can do so at 253-465-3205. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chegatorresource.com at chegatorresource.com. Find all of our archives at messiahmatters.com and don't forget to go to Torah Resource. You can find all sorts of wonderful articles and whatnot there as well. And finally, if you have not already, please do us a favor and subscribe to this YouTube channel. It really does help us. I know that sounds weird, but it does help. Okay, with all of that said, let's then um, move. Let's move on. Let's see here. Uh, we could go a lot of different places here. First of all, someone emailed me, actually one of our uh, one of our producers emailed me just yesterday and said, can you please tell me, I got my producer mug and it has a number 36 on it. Can you please tell me what that is in reference to? Now, this is a this is my fault and Rob's fault that we just assume that people have been listening since the beginning and we know that they haven't. Um, so there's actually kind of a weird and long history that goes along with this. Um, back in our first season, the first, second season, we were on, Torah Resource actually had a radio uh, online radio station and basically it was created to house the Rob and Caleb show, our, our podcast. That's why we created the entire radio show. This shows that we didn't know what in the world podcasting was. Anyway, not the point. Um, we, we could see how many people were listening at a time. And at one point I said, we have 36 listeners. And for some well, reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, what also, uh, also, also, <laughs> there was someone, was it uh, Isaac Shapira or something? Oh, they probably only have 50 listeners. Like he was like, Oh yeah and, yeah, and and you were like, actually, it's only it's less than that. <laughs> yeah, somebody was like, they probably only have fifty. That's right, and I I just thought it was hilarious because I thought like, You're we're like, not yeah, no, who, if who would only. All <laughs> <laughs> right, but then after that, we decided like, okay, well, thirty six listeners is is the amount of listeners that we have. Like, we can never get more than that. We can never get less than that. And so, anytime we get a new listener, that means that an old listener has stopped listening. It was a way to self-deprecate in a humorous way. And so we've always said we have 36 listeners. Now, here's the weird and interesting part. There was a there was a conference that we did over in Spokane one time, and I was giving a lecture on why Kabbalah is of the occult, essentially. And there was this pastor there who had studied with the Breslavers or whatever, and he was so offended. He was just so offended that I would say anything bad against the Hasids. So afterwards I could tell he was trying to, he was trying to like build a bridge, but he walked up and he was like, I forget if we must've had it on like a card or something. And he was like 36. Is that because of the 36, you know, righteous, whatever it like, and he put it all into Kabbalah. And I was like, no, like, no, no. <laughs> what are you talking about? It has nothing to do with that anyway. So I yeah. think that guy, that's one of those quote messianic rabbis who <laughs> like, flipped out like he eventually became i think he's like an ordained lutheran pastor now like he he went from you know what i mean you see these people change like radically yep he's one of those guys anyway um so that's that's the joke it's like the where are they now where are they now <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> that's that we need to do a show on that except probably wouldn't want to mention names but so the funny the, thing the, the, where are they now category. The, the funny thing is is that right now in our chat room we only have 27 listeners so that means that we're actually missing seven listeners right now there's seven listeners that are not in our chat room so uh 
<laughs> and Andrew Schumacher said, would love to have 36 live. Yeah, see, I mean, exactly. Uh, for us, and that's just it. If you look at our YouTube channel even now, we have just over 7,000 subscribers. And a lot, like to me, that's a ton. I just can't, it's unfathomable that we would have that many subscribers. But if you look at like some, you know, some of these other ministries, it's like 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 subscribers. It's just like... Well, we're certainly not teaching to the masses. That's for sure. We're not. We're not. Narrow selling. is the way. Yes, exactly. I, seriously, though, I would be concerned if we had like all of a sudden like a thousand. Like a thousand, I would be like Caleb. Hundred thousand. I mean, we've we've we, we've done. We're doing something wrong here. <laughs> maybe we'd be able to pay bills though. That would be nice. <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's go. Let's keep going. Let's see what we got here. Um. Okay, you know what? I've had this uh, audio queued up for the past, I don't know, four shows, and we've never played it. Let's go ahead and take a listen to this. This is on the Melchizedekian Priesthood. Yeah, hello. My name is Bill. I'm a believer. I have been uh, all my life. Hi, and, Bill. Uh, my question is this. I've been trying to find out and research where the information is for the beginning of Melchizedek and the actual facts of whether he was Shem or whether he was uh, considered a celestial angel or, uh, you know, somebody from, from heaven. Okay, so here's the deal, Bill. Uh, you're not going to get a good answer on this. And the reason why is because the text is ambiguous. The, the bi biblical text is ambiguous on who Melchizedek was and where, where he comes from. And the writer of the Hebrews actually takes this and uses it to his advantage. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews said, and this is actually where the notion of the Melchizedekian priesthood comes from. Basically, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is there, the, the Torah, Moses, doesn't give us any genealogy for Melchizedek. We have no clue who he could be. He, so, in other words, he is eternal in, in both directions. And, and he uses this because he says that just as a pre, like the priest had to go into the, the, the sanctuary once a year, Every year, he had to continue to go in, but our priest only had to go in once for all time. And he uses this idea of like no no genealogy being eternal in both directions. He uses this to his advantage. And uh, but all of that to say, we don't know who Melchizedek was. All we and what's interesting is that the Mormons have actually really ran with this idea of the Melchizedekian priesthood and whatnot. But ultimately, the, the, the uh, writer of the Hebrews is simply using this to show the importance of Christ's etern eternity in both directions. Rob? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, was it Bill? Is that who sent in the... Yes, Bill. The Thanks, Bill, for the great voicemail. The um, Caleb, just a note, the volume was kind of low at first, so I just a technical thing. Um, but I, I was able to hear the, the bulk of it. Um, this is one of those uh, places like Caleb says in the scriptures that is we have just very little uh, information and in the second temple period that is that's like the the breeding ground for sectarianism is like how they answer these questions like just the same thing with Enoch so if you look at the sectarians like the Essenes you know they build up the, this you know the book of Enoch and they do the same thing around Melchizedek in the Dead Sea Scrolls all sorts of uh, we'll tell you all about Melchizedek kind of right. thing. Just come to us. We'll tell you all the mysteries. We, we got um, and later out. in rabbinics, you have, I, I think, uh, Bill, maybe you already were aware of this. I mean, you mentioned Shem, that is the, the son of Noah, uh, through whom Abraham comes. Um, in the rabbinic tradition is associated with, with Shem. So um, again, in the, you go back to the first century, there's different groups answering that, um, that gap that God left deliberately there in the text, answering that gap with their own imagination, what we call Midrash. And uh, Caleb's right. We need to stick to the scripture. We've got, you know, Genesis 14, we've got Psalm 110, and we've got uh, the epistle of the Hebrews. And, and we need to be okay that this is, this is what God has given us. And this is what we need to be satisfied with and then seek to understand as best we can with those constraints, because that's God who's, who provided those constraints. We don't need to get off in this, uh, the sectarian, uh, uh, 
temptation, you know, to, to sensationalize and sell books, uh, you know, on the mysteries now revealed kind of thing. Right. So I just, by the way, hang on, let me turn this back up. Check, check, check. I just realized that I bumped something when I, uh, I bumped something when I moved my, okay, sorry about that, everybody. Anyway, so yeah, I, I don't think that, that Bill's going to get a good answer on this. I, do, I just don't think that there is, I mean, there's, it's ambiguous and I think it's it's made like that on purpose. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, we have, this is a fun. It's what, if I may, one other, can I just make another point on that? You may. That I think is cool. There's, there are a few places in the apostolic writings, and and so Caleb and I, you know, the, the whole Torah resource team, we affirm, you know, that the apostolic writings were written in Greek. They are not translations from Hebrew. They're not translations from Aramaic. Right. Uh, so, and, and Tim Haig and myself have different articles. I've Caleb maybe even done some too on our website. You can look. Um, so we know we and but we are fully aware of the people out there who are trying to teach something different. Um, but with that being said, there's times where the writers give us kind of a dictionary entry. Like, for example, right. one example is in the Gospel of Mark or even in Luke, it says Abba, Father, Abba, Pater. So it gives the Aramaic Abba and then gives us the Greek trans, the Greek word Pater or Father or, you know, uh, Pascha. Well, well, actually, Pascha, they don't. That's one they leave. Uh, rabbi, Rabbi, meaning didaskalos, meaning teacher. So they give us both languages together. Well, in Hebrew, in the Epistle of Hebrews, uh, the author does the same thing for us with the name Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then king of peace, because he says king of shalom, uh, meaning king of, of shalem, as it says in Genesis 14. He interprets it that as peace. So it's just uh, from a from a biblical word geek like myself <laughs> perspective, um, the the treatment of of the name Melchizedek and and King of Peace in the Epistle of Hebrews is one of those really cool places where where we see language instruction as a priority for the church, right? Because it me and so I've talked to people who say, oh, and they go to, you know, big churches. Oh, my pastor says that you don't, if, if you have to mention Hebrew or Greek in your sermon, it's like letting your underwear show. <laughs> okay. It's like it should, people should never, you, you need to work, you need to do your work, but you, it should never show. And I, I reject that. I reject that because throughout the apostolic writings, we have explanations. We have a use usage of Hebrew and Aramaic terms that are untranslated, like I, like Pascha, like it's Aramaic for Pesach, Mana, which is for bread, uh, for the uh, manna, what we call manna, right? Um, but then we have those that the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us instruction, right. gives us a word in two different languages together. And what that means is part of our responsibility as disciples of Yeshua is to learn more than one language, it's to start to to get back into the original languages. That's just a, a one example there from Hebrews, uh, Epistle of Hebrews treatment of Melchizedek. My boy Lee in the chat room, he's on fire. Um, okay, I got to turn. I got to figure out my audio here. Sorry, everybody. It's uh, it's it's a problem. What's uh, sounds fine to me. Okay, yeah. I'm glad it sounds good to you. I'm gonna just let it let it be let it let it be. Um, okay. Here we go. Here's a fun one. This was left on a YouTube comment by a channel named Shof Team. Is the New Testament scripture, uh, is the New Testament scripture, oh, I get it. Is the New Testament scripture, if it was never canonized by the existing Jewish authority? Romans 3, 2. It's interesting that Romans 3, 2 is the, uh, is the reference when the uh, canonicity of the apostolic scriptures is at the core of the question. For those who don't know, Romans 3.2 is the one that says, oh, my, uh, of course, my my uh, program uh, freezes right now. Uh, Romans 3.2 is the one that says that the Jews were given um, the uh, much in every way to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is an interesting question, not only because of the idea of, of whether or not 
the Jews had the ability to canonize something, which I don't think that they did. And, uh, and actually, we don't even see them attempt to close a canon until Yavne in the first century, right? Yavne seems to be the first time that the uh, Jews decide we're going to sit down and try to, to see what is in the canon and what's not. Um, but well, I, I take a different view. I take the, the, the basic canon, what we call the Tanakh, was already was already established. I completely agree with you. I, I'm uh, That's not a different view than mine. I completely agree with you. I think that the canon was already established, and I think that what they did at Yavne was, was and actually uh, F of Bruce um, actually makes a comment that they didn't take anything out and they didn't put anything in that was not already considered scripture. I and, think, right. I think it was a like a, it's kind of like a church synod, really. I mean, they're like, okay, look, there's people pushing all these, like, jubilees, you know, people pushing all these, books that right. are not part of the scribal tradition right and, and so they had just affirmed it what does it mean that uh, they were given the oracles first of all they were the ones given the prophecies they were the one that god god was speaking to uh, and i think that it means that they were given the oracles that they were supposed to preserve which they did right they preserved the scriptures for us they the torah the tanakh was preserved for us so that we can could read it they didn't decide what was in the scriptures or not that's not what romans 3 2 is saying it's not that the Jews got to decide what is canon and what's not. Um, that that's right. there's there's just that's just not how it works. The Holy Spirit is the one who uh, tells us what canon, what is canon, and what's not. And right. uh, anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell a bag of goods that is no good. Um, so I would, in response to that, I would say no. Uh, so well, actually, let, in response to that, I'd say yes. The New Testament is scripture. And it's not because the Jews chose it or didn't choose it. It's because the Holy Spirit is the one that showed that what books of the apostolic scriptures should be in the in the uh, in in the canon. And so th this is why we have the sixty six book canon. I just did work on the Council of Trent and the notion that the um, that the Catholic Church adds the apocrypha at the Council of Trent. This was a strategic move, and I've seen a lot of Catholic rebuttals to this on, oh, no, the, all they were doing was affirming what was already in there. They did that. They affirmed what was already in there back in the, in the first four centuries of the church. They didn't, need, they didn't need anybody at the Council of Trent to come in and uh, reaffirm it because the, what, the, what they did at the Council of Trent was they added books. They added seven books, and they did that specifically to oust the reformers. Um, and those books have major problems as well. Anyway, okay. Let's move on. This is a question for Rob. Rob, get ready to talk a lot. You ready? Are you ready to talk a lot? You keep freezing on me for some reason. Are you well, still? it's awful cold here, like I said. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Jared says this. He says, my name is Jared. Hi, Jared. I'm a, long time, I'm a long time weekly listener, and I really enjoy your show. Thank you very much. I have a couple of questions concerning the pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton that I was hoping you and Rob could answer. I've heard your opinions on Nehemiah Gordon before, but I don't recall you commenting on his claims much. So aside from his motivations, is there any merit whatsoever to his claim that Yahovah pronunciation, or is it all completely bogus? Do you want me to stop there and you can respond to that? Is that the whole bit or does he have? There is a whole lot more. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't, uh, I haven't been in touch with him for a few years. I know he, uh, Nehemiah Gordon finished his PhD, but I, I think he might have changed his tune um, because he what he did is, uh, for his PhD has nothing to do with how he got his name. How he, you know the book, all the books and teaching he sold on how to how to pronounce the Tetragrammaton, which uh, uh, wouldn't stand in the circles of of the Masora scholars, you know. But uh, but yeah, it's it's you know it's pretty well known that the vowels on the tetragrammaton um, preserved in the Masoretic tradition, if they even put vowels on it at all. I mean, we have uh, early uh, Masoretic manuscripts where they don't even put any vowels on the tetragrammaton. Right. Or they just write like uh, two letter yodes or three yodes, like, cause, cause they don't even, sometimes they're even hesitant to write it out. So they certainly weren't trying to pronounce it in their public uh, reading or cantillation of the of the scriptures. 
Uh, but the vowels that you see in the, the Tiberian, you know, the majority of the time in the, in the Tiberian tradition, which is the tradition that informs, like if you buy a, a printed Hebrew Bible today with vocalization, um, 99.9% uh, chances that that's the Tiberian tradition that you're looking at for the vowel points. And the bulk of those is a Shava under the Yod. So this is going to be a little technical, so I don't want to alienate people who haven't done Hebrew, but you know, you have yod, four letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. And the, the basic Tiberian tradition is you put a Shava under the Yod, a Cholam, that's the O sound, uh, above the Vav, or, or between after the He and before the Vav, and then a Kametz under the Vav. And, um, but this is, it's, it's for the word Adonai. Uh, it's to say Adonai, um, not to actually read the name. And we know this for so many, a whole bunch of different reasons. We know this to be the case. Um, but Gordon, at least, yeah, again, I don't know what tune he's playing today, but, uh, years ago and how over the last 20 years, how he kind of got his traction was pointing people to that and saying, Yehovah, this is it. This is it. This is the name and got getting a, a big following, you know, and a lot of enthusiastic support uh, for that. But it's, it's, it's complete nonsense. Uh, it is a complete nonsense. And it's, um, I, I, the last time I kind of had a heated discussion with him, I said, look, here, you have an opportunity to, to take the argument that you've been touring around the world making and present it to the, the top Masora scholars of the world and you don't do it. And uh, that says a lot, doesn't it? To my, to my knowledge, he, he, he still hasn't done it because there's, there's just no way that they would <laughs> yeah, he'd laugh, get him, alive. laugh him off the stage. But see, the, and this is a problem. This gets us back to Hebrew roots. If I could just tie it back. Please. The Hebrew roots is a situation where it's like a big uh, uh, variety of, of uh, kind of forms. It's not just, I don't see it as one complete thing. But when, in my limited experience, when I think of Hebrew roots, I think of people who are, uh, who don't have competency. They had, they don't have formal, rigorous training in the languages of the Bible, but yet they're highly curious. They're they're super super curious, and they're willing to invest in pursuing their curiosity, but not not according to wisdom, not according to what is called musar discipline. Uh, uh, and so they won't they just are chasing an appetite and, and then they get all sorts of, Oh, this oohs and ahs are what uh, inform their, what they think of as their faith. And so the, so what you see with the people who listen to, let's say Nehemiah Gordon or Michael Rood, or, or if when you go into the, the, like the Lou white or the Hebrew word pictures, these are people who have no, they're, they're basically gullible. They're gullible and it's a sad situation. You know, I, I've, I feel a whole variety of res emotional responses from anger to, to laughter, to like befuddlement, like that, that, and then just sadness, you know, that really it just comes down to like, it's a sad uh, snapshot of, of our depravity. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's like the bottom line for me, but so, yeah. So long story short, uh, Yehovah is an invention. It's an invented vocalization. And, uh, so Robert in the, in the chat room says, why do we listen to Gordon? Should we be eating at the table of those that deny Messiah? Um, I think, so this is a, so, yeah, that's, I tell, that's a really good point. I make the, that point to people all the time. I'm like, why do you go, you Okay, what, what, back to our core beliefs. Our core beliefs is that we have, if you belong to Messiah, you're heirs according to promise. You're children of Abraham. That's Paul's one of Paul's main points in Galatians. And it means that the spirit of the Son of God is in your heart. And by, by that regenerated life, his resurrection life, you cry out, Abba, Father. A person who doesn't have that regenerated heart can still cry out abba father they can say the words but it's not it's not from the born born again spirit so it's it's not going to be any fruit this is going to be works oriented so so but let me let me finish this point the the person who's born from above 
is the person who is disciplined by the word of God and discipled by the spirit unto Yeshua. And the scriptures are, are part of that. If and, and that's where I learned to walk as a new creation. What fruit is there for me to go and, and go to a person who's peddling Bible mysteries, who has no such discipline by the spirit of God? It's, it's, it's a waste. It's absolute waste. Okay, hang on just a sec. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for, for a few seconds because I think from Bible scholars who are believers. So, for, for instance, Mark Nanos wrote a book on Romans. I, I have benefited from that book, and I've benefited from his scholarship. The difference that I see between someone like Mark... Yeah, but your benefit is just, it's just maybe historical... That's true. ...knowledge. And, it's, not, it's, not something that's gonna, it's not something that is increasing the fruits of the Spirit in your life. I I, compl- I completely agree with you, and and here's the thing that I'd say: uh, the differences between someone like Mark Nanos and uh, and Hemi Gordon. Hemi Gordon is is peddling snake oil. That is what he's doing. He's not he's not uh, he's not giving you historical accuracy. What to he's be do- fair, I would say he was. I I I have no knowledge okay, fair, of what, fair enough. what but, he's doing now. But but when he was with Rude and him and and Rude were going around and 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 uh, preaching their stuff. Uh, they were they were modern day snake oilsmen. That's what they were doing. They were peddling nonsense, complete sensational nonsense, and uh, and so those who got wrapped up in that, they think that they're listening to all this great wisdom and whatnot, and they're not. They're listening to to they're buying the snake oil, and to me that is that really you know I sat down I talked to Gordon. He said why are, you know I can't believe he came down on me so hard on your show. I said that was Rob. He said okay fair enough it was Rob. And then I and then afterwards I listened to some of the stuff that he put out and I thought who would ever buy this? This is, you know he did the same thing to me when we sat down in person. He tried to wheel, weasel his way out of the fact that he's selling snake oil, and that's exactly what he was doing. So I, I mean, why a believer would sit down and listen to Nehemiah Gordon is absolutely one hundred percent beyond me. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't think believers should do it. I think he is peddling nonsense, well, or at Caleb, least was. It might be people who do not have. They, they, they're not in a community, I would say, where there's like a trusted leadership. They're out like pursuing their curiosity. I don't know, man. The, I got people on the internet. We, I got people who have come in and out of our community and they, and they, they still go and listen to Gordon. They still listen, listen to all these, you know, I get, I mean, constantly I hear, Oh, did you hear what 119 ministry said? It's like, no, no, I didn't. Anyway. Okay. Let's keep going with, uh, with this question, he says, also, I've heard it claimed that the Hebrew word, word hova means destruction or mischief or something like that. And that by, yeah, com- yeah that's true. And that by, com- by combining it with Yah, it creates an abhorrent statement about God. The claim is also that this pronunciation was created to mislead those who would attempt to state the name out loud. My questions are, one, is the claim grammatically possible or accurate? And two, is it reasonable to be concerned about expressing Yehovah out loud because of what it is supposedly saying? That's that's really interesting. I mean, I I can give you two examples. Um, I just looked looked them up here. One is Isaiah forty seven eleven, and the other what's that was the other one there? Ezekiel. Actually, he has another question on that. Is there any Ezekiel seven twenty six? Havo al oh hova al hova tavo. Disaster upon disaster will come, and it's talking about the law, Torah tovad mekohen. The the Torah will will perish from the priest, um, and so yeah, I mean, <laughs> what that I I don't know if that is. I mean, it it's true that the sound is there when you say Yehovah. The word hova is the Hebrew word for disaster. So uh, that doesn't mean that's that it was deliberately done. That it, it was really done, uh, for, at least from the the what we know from the Masoretic tradition, as a guard to say, you know, we we recognize our you know our human frailty, and so when we're reading the scripture, we're going to say Adonai rather than try to pronounce the name. And, and there's other reasons for this too. We know that Gentiles uh, had taken the name yod heh and made magical charms 
and adding it to spells and other things that were completely high, you know, completely hijacked it from, from the context of the Tanakh. And what they did then was add it to their, uh, you know, their syncreti- syncreti- uh, what do you call it? Syncretistic religion, you know, where they're just saying, borrowing from all these um, superstitions to try to, you know, either pedal in the magic or, or uh, like we know later, the Baal Shem Tov kind of thing, but in, in the pagan world. So the, the Masoretes were very, very guarding, uh, guarded concerning uh, attempts to pronounce the name. They were very suspicious of that and, and prevented it. Uh, this is interesting. He goes on, similarly, similar, similarly, I can't even say that word. I've heard a claim that the pronunciation must be Yahuwah. Now we're getting into Lou White territory because the word Yahuda is pronounced Yahuda. Therefore, if you delete the Dalit, you get Yahuwah. I feel like that would be too obvious, but I know nothing about Hebrew. But if it were that simple, why would anyone have any question of how to pronounce it? Is this claim grammatically possible slash accurate and why? Um, no. <laughs> no, that, that is, that is the, that to me, yes. that move. So here's the claim. So the, the word uh, Judah for the tribe of Judah, right? Or the, the fourth son of Leah, Yod, Hey, Vav, Dalit, Hey. And the name of God, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. And so the difference is just this letter, this fourth letter in the name Judah, this da, this da sound. And so I think it was the Lou White approach where I first heard it is, see, all you have to do is take the, uh, the letter Dalit out and you have the name of God. And so it's kind of that to me encapsulates Hebrew letter mysticism, which I associate with some people in the, the box of what we call Hebrew roots. Um, it's, it, we just, language doesn't work that way. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, we, so that also is not how uh, the language works. And it is, but it shows that how creative people can be. Right. I, I agree with you completely. Here's a bonus question. And this, he literally wrote that. I, I love it. Bonus question. <laughs> Andrew Gabriel. It is Roth. a game show. <laughs> exactly. Game. Exactly. Andrew Gabriel, Gabriel Roth. Man, I can't talk today. What's going on? Andrew, this it's, the, it's, temperature, it's, it's the temperature. It's so cold out. Uh, there's a lot of snow on the ground. By the way, for those wondering why my, my, uh, my lighting is so off, it's because there's so much snow outside right now that it's all white just shining in on me. Anyway, and I don't have any, I don't have any, uh, any curtains. Anyway, okay. Yet. He says, a bonus question, Andrew Gabriel Roth made a statement once that a cuneiform text somewhere has the Yahweh pronunciation right in the text. Do you know if that's true? He didn't seem to thoroughly prove it, or at least his explanation was confusing. As you know, the proper pronunciation of yod heh is not only important to a lot of folks in the Torah community, but it's also a very divisive issue. My interest is to discover the best responses to some of the claims. So okay. uh, can you repeat just the main, what did Andrew Gabriel Roth say? Andrew Gabriel Roth made the statement once that a cuneiform text somewhere has oh, that's the right. Yahweh yeah. pronunciation right in the text. Do you know if that is true? Um, yeah, I don't remember. It might, it might be Egyptian, but, but it, it doesn't matter if it's Egyptian or if it's in uh, cuneiform. Uh, there's, so many contextual things. First of all, the vowel, it, it's speculation on the vowels, right? It, it, it's still, um, uh, we're, we're trying to interpret ancient signs. And even if, so let's just say for a moment that's true. There's some ancient cuneiform text that has this name that way. What does that tell us? That means that that scribe who was, you know, doing the stylus into the clay, right? if it interpreted that way, it, it, that's not, it, does that mean, oh, that, that scribe was led by the Holy Spirit? Right. Right. I mean, it's, um, yeah, yeah. And actually this, so this is actually an interesting point that uh, we, we've uh, debated in the office quite a bit is whether or not. 
the vowels are inspired or not. And the reason that this is an interesting question is because you can, I can see it from both sides. First of all, obviously the vowels were not written in the original text. And therefore the vowels themselves, that is the written vowels in the text are not actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, the counter has been made by Andre, one of our colleagues, who has said, yes, but the way that, a print, that these words were pronounced was inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't just make up any uh, vocalization that you want of these words. There was a known way to pronounce them. And therefore, even though the vowels aren't written, the vocalization of the vowels were inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think that that's an interesting, that's not his, that's not his uh, argument that I think actually, uh, was it Fuller? I think Fuller might've come up with, uh, might've Well, that, that was a that. problem that confronted the re reformers. Because the reformers, if you go back to the, you know, 500 years and you look at, is it John Knox, you know, and other reformers, they've left the Catholics, right? And right. and the Catholics are saying, well, if you reject our Latin tradition, right, you're going to have to go learn Hebrew. And they're like, good luck with that, because there's consonants and then you have the later uh, vowel pointings. And so then the reformers had that, that was one of the questions because they valued the original languages and because they were going back to learn Hebrew, they were confronted with, with exactly what the, the Roman Catholic church was saying that they were going to have to deal with was the question of the vowel points. And so you see that question emerges in the, you know, the 15th century, basically, right whether or not, and you see it in the rabbinic discussion too, do the vowel points go all the way back to Moses? Are they part of the oral Torah or are they interpretive? Are they part of an interpretive tradition? Um, and, and so in the Jewish side, they'll say, well, look, a Torah scroll, a kosher Torah scroll doesn't have any vowel points on it. And uh, it would be disqualified, right? Halakhically, a Torah scroll would be disqualified if, if it had any wrong letters or if it had any uh, vowel points on it. Right. So that's that's a discussion that's in the rabbinic world specifically, and it's in a, it's a discussion that's in the reformers that are as they're talking about translating from Hebrew, and um, and then it so it, obviously that's part of our. Uh, larger biblical tradition, even that you know the Westminster uh, uh, digital or digit digitification. I don't know the, the Leningrad Codex in digital form. The way they've they created the whole digital file that has all it's a digital representation, vowel for vowel, accent for accent, of the entire Leningrad Codex. That's a product of I want to say, isn't that West, uh, Westminster? Um, uh, I, I might be misremembering on that, but it's a reformed institution that created that core digital file. And so it shows that like, yeah, we, they, we want to preserve it, but the, the, the tradition of the Masora is an area of research in and of itself. It is, it, it is not a fixed uh, tradition. The consonants are taken as fixed the vowel points are seen as, as you go back to the, our earliest examples of vowel points, there's Babylonian tradition, there's a Tiberian tradition, and there's variances in between them. And so it, it, it's uh, something that needs to be learned, but it's, and it's part of our discussion, but in terms of the affirmation that the vowel points are given by the Holy Spirit is, I, I'm not prepared to make that claim. I think, I've, so, I've spent a lot of time in studying the Messorah. The thing that, the thing that uh, is interesting to me is the notion of how the Torah was actually conveyed to Moses. So was Moses given a, you know, a, uh, I mean, we, was he given a pen and a piece of paper? Obviously not. But I mean, was he giving a writing utensil and God said, I want you to write this down. And then he didn't actually audibly speak to him, but just inspired him to write. No, that's probably not what happened. In fact, out up on the mountain, um, God shows him things. God speaks to him. So then the question becomes, how did God pronounce it? To me, that's what's ultimately inspired in terms of the Torah. 
Now, when, when Moses writes down whatever he's being given in the tent and throughout the wilderness, he continues to go along and, and write the Torah out, right? He's, he's writing this for 40 years in the wilderness. As this is happening, is it because God is actually speaking to him? If that's the case, then we would have to say, at the very least, the Torah itself has an inspirational vocalization. In other words, God spoke it, Moses heard it, and he wrote something down. Now, he might not have written the vocals, the vowels down, which means the written word is simply what is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But certainly, Moses had an understanding of what he heard. He understood because God spoke it. And if God spoke it, that is the ultimate pronunciation, right? So there is a correct pronunciation. And I think that that's where the people who are trying to argue that the vowels are in in fact inspired, I think that that's more where they're coming from. Not that the actual lines and dashes and dots underneath letters are in fact inspired to be written, but rather that, that there there is a vocalization that God gave and that is in fact inspired and we represent that through the the vowels themselves and i think right and we and we do have like in revelation where, back to the point i made way earlier about um in the epistle of hebrews how the word name melchizedek and melch shalem king of peace is unpacked for us we have transliteration in like revelation of hallelujah hallelujah and the the transliteration matches that of the what the masoretes later put on it even though it's written in greek letters um it matches what the the vowel points that in terms of what a person hears right uh, and so there is there must be stability for that to be true if you have it a, a greek transliteration from the first century and then you look at a ninth century Maser- masoretic writing of hallelujah and the way they put the vowels on it and those match does that mean the Masoretes copied Revelation? Does that mean Revelation copied the Masoretes? No, it means that there was a strong vocalization tradition that was captured, it's snapshot one place, one time in Greek, and another place in another time in you know, these little mark, additional marks around the Hebrew consonants. Um, yeah, I agree with you. So we could move on. We have a couple of minutes here if we want. Um, the chat room is ablaze right now, um, and in, in a good way. In fact, there was an incredible discussion on Melchizedek and whether or not Melchizedek was Yeshua. Lee, our, our good friend Lee in the chat room, took that one on and I think did a very good job. Um, so anyway, uh, and uh, Brandon wants us to get back about talking about the millennium. I don't think that that's going to happen. I think we've exhausted our understanding of the millennium. I, to be honest with you, the millennium is just not something that uh, that I've dived super deep into. It's, uh, you know, I stand on the, when it comes to my, uh, my understanding, I stand on the shoulders of those who have come before me and uh, their understanding of it. And uh, at some point, um, I might happen to, uh, to really jump into it, but I don't know. We do have one more thing in our... Let's see if we, let, well, we have a couple more, but let's let's go to this one. Curtis says, hello, Caleb. You mentioned the majority calendar in a show recently, and I have been considering the biblical feast calendar, which I know is a topic of much debate. Can you explain the logic behind leaning towards the majority calendar? An argument I have heard is pa- in passing is that Yeshua followed the majority calendar, therefore we should too. Maybe instead, Yeshua followed an accurate calendar that happened to coincide with the majority. If the majority moves to an inaccurate calendar, should we move too? Especially considering potential inaccuracies introduced post-Yeshua, such as the uh, tradition of calculating versus citing the new moon, and seemingly arbitrary rules of postponement for convenience sake, not to mention the majority of Christendom's weekly Sunday festivals. Okay, I think that, uh, Curtis, this is a great question. It is a really good question, but I think that it doesn't accurately capture what was going on in the first century. And the reason why is this. First of all, in the first century, it wasn't like everyone just walked outside and said, oh, look, the new moon. We're getting, Now is the new month. That's not what happened. They had designated people, and those designated people actually had to cite the new moon. And this was, this was uh, not... Certainly, if you were not in Jerusalem, then you would have to cite the new moon yourself. But ultimately, the point is, is that 
The reason this is important is because the temple was the one that people were looking at. The temple, uh, basically, whenever the priests were going to do the festivals is when the people had to bring their offerings. And the, the biggest point of uh, contention here would be the Passover. And the reason why is because you would take your lamb to the, Paso- to, to the temple, they would slaughter the lamb, and they'd hand it back to you. It was the only time, the only time that you could take a lamb to the temple, have it slaughtered by the, by the temple, and they would hand it back to you. No other time. And so if I went a day before what the temple considered to be Nisan 14, and um, let's say I went on Nisan 13, and I brought my lamb and I said, here, slaughter this lamb and hand it back to me. They would say, absolutely not. That's not how it works. And so then the question is, okay, so the temple has specific designated people who cite the new moon. And then the question is, did they actually move the calendar for convenience sake? And the answer is, yeah, we think they did. And uh, within, now I know that this is later, and, and uh, but there's evidence from not only Josephus, but also from the later rabbinical writing. They moved it for multiple reasons. Number one, if the, if the lambing hadn't happened yet and there wasn't enough lambs to actually have the Passover when uh, they needed one, they would add a month. They would add a month to the calendar. So, so that's number one. Number two, they would add, uh, they would add a month if the bridges had been washed out and they didn't think people could get down to the, te- uh, up to the temple uh, in time for Passover. Um, they would move even the, the sighting of the new moon depending on uh, various factors. So the point is, is that they actually did move the calendar. And the reason that we think that Yeshua actually uh, followed the majority calendar is because every time that he's in the temple for a festival, the festival is happening. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> that would be a great Monty Python skit, like, like, like you know, like the Life of Brian kind of thing. Like, like Jesus goes to the temple to celebrate, and like no one's there. <laughs> All right, he brings he's a- like, what's going on here? Didn't you hear? <laughs> yeah, and and the thing is, is that he tells us it's this, been postponed. It's, <laughs> no, it hasn't. Yes, yes it, it has. has. Look, no, it hasn't. Yes, it has. Uh, oh. So, so the I mean, the point here is that uh, you know he goes, he has his, his disciples go to the temple to have the Passover lamb uh, slaughtered and handed back to them. He says, go pre- uh, prepare the Pascha. What do you think that means? It doesn't mean go set a table. It means go have the, the lamb slaughtered. And uh, they go and they do it and they come back, they have the lamb. It's not like they, they come back and, and they say, well, we were celebrating on this day, but actually they postponed it by a day and we don't celebrate it like that. The factors is uh, the factors in Yeshua celebrating the majority calendar is not. I mean, the fact is is that the majority calendar is. I mean, I think that it basically is the way that Yeshua celebrated, and so that's. I mean, that's my argument for the majority calendar. All right. Well, it's been an interesting one. I think we made some people mad, and uh, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, I hope that uh, I hope that you guys have had at least some fun. Hey, uh, do us a favor. Let us know what you want to talk about. You can do that by sending us a, uh, a voicemail, 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chag at torahresource.com. It's chag at torahresource.com. We would love to hear from you. And really, the uh, comments and the emails are what drive this show. And so uh, we hope that we hear from you and that we can uh, talk about something that you want to talk about. Hey, I just, I just realized this is the last show of uh, 2021. That's right. We right? go into 2022. Right? Yeah, you did. That's right. Next, We'll see you next year, everybody. We will see you next year. Oh, man. What a year 2021 has been, right? Fun times. Um, all right. Well, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. You know why? Because Messiah matters. 